welcome. Here at The Bridge Church, we exist to help you connect to God, grow with family, and serve our city. We hope today's message will allow you to grow deeper in your connection to God. Enjoy the message. Father, the power that we are singing about, God, the power that we are longing for, God, this is the very power that has broken the chain of sin and death over my life. It is the power that breaks the bonds of the past and all the wounds that so easily come back in our minds. God, it is the power that breaks those habits that we get so easily entangled by. And it is that very power, God, that we have come not just to acquire, but to re-experience again, God. And yet some people here today, they may need to experience your power for the first time, that the Holy Spirit would enter into their life for the first time. And so God, we pray that these would not be melodies and songs that we sing, but this would be the testimony of our lives that by the power of Jesus Christ, my life has been changed. And because I'm alive today, I live to tell you that story, that Jesus changes lives and he can change your life. And the transformative power of the gospel is available for you today. And there is no other name like the name of Jesus. And that I grew weary of my name running my life. And I needed a new name to run my life. I was my own Lord. I needed a new Lord. And I needed a new life. And even if you know Jesus today, you can still have a new life. Because his power can take you further towards him. But do not sleep because your sin can take you further from him than you could possibly imagine. Come closer to him today. 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 And through your power, God, you will do again the miraculous. You'll speak through a human. You, you created people and you know they're flawed yet you communicate eternal truths through flawed people. You do that. So we ask that you do it again. Holy Spirit, carry my words to the heart of the broken, and to the heart of the hurting, and carry my words to the proud and break them today, and carry my words to the one who thinks they're alone and remind them that you don't leave and you don't forsake. Holy Spirit, touch so that we know you were here and you are with us when we leave. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You can be seated. Well, it's good to be here today. Thank you so much for coming out to Bridge Church. And I am the pastor, uh, Pastor James, if you're here for your very first time. It's encouraging to be walking through this series on conflict because I know many of you probably have not ever really been taught in a biblical framework about conflict. You grew up in a home, you have friends and you have family, and even if they didn't teach you about conflict through any kind of workshop, you've learned how to do conflict. You've learned how to deal with people. And either two, uh, we talked about the other weeks, we talked about how we oftentimes have peace faking 
or peace breaking. We can run to conflict so much so that we don't even want the relationship and we break peace. Or we can, we can pretend the conflict isn't there and we can fake peace and so much so that we don't have authenticity in any of our relationships. And we talked about how faithful are the wounds of a friend and deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. And we realize that many of us don't even have those kind of friendships where people are close enough to us to speak that kind of truth. And we've been talking about this as a community. We've been talking about this as in our city groups. And I've gotten emails and phone calls and people walking up to me and how do I do this? And, 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 and we've walked with them and counseled them through the many different ways that you talk through conflict. But today, we want to kind of give an 80,000 foot view on this, showing that we've, we've shown the problem and we've shown how to how to do it, how to approach people, but I want to give kind of an 80,000 foot view theologically as to what is happening when we forgive people. And I also want to show you how forgiveness and reconciliation work hand in hand and how reconciliation is the intended outcome of forgiveness and not just the forgiveness in and of itself, but we are to reconcile with people. That is the intended goal. Have you ever, with someone who has hurt you, have you ever conjured up in your mind, I'm going to forgive them? But then you've realized in trying to forgive them, you looked at them, and even if you said it to them or said it internally, you've said, I forgive you, but I can't be close to you again. And you think about that. That is the natural disposition of our hearts, and it's actually our, our, our physical makeup. If you get hurt, you don't go back towards hurt. You don't go towards pain. Matthew 6 and 12 says, forgive us our debts as we also forgive our debtors. That's what's happening when someone hurts you, they become indebted to you. Or at least, even if those aren't words you say, you feel like they owe you something. And yet, there's two parts of this. Forgive us our debts as we also forgive our debtors. So this is going vertical to the Lord. Forgive our debts. And so we realize that we have a debt towards the Lord, that we've sinned against him and that we owe him something. And can, have you ever sinned and prayed and said, God, I'm so sorry. I, I forgive you. I mean, please forgive me. You ever prayed that? And can you imagine the Lord responded to you and said, I forgive you but we just can't be close again. Can you imagine if the Lord had ever done that? So this is kind of the, the framework of what I want you to think about, and we have it up on a slide. What would happen if God forgave you exactly the same way you are currently forgiving others in this current state of your life? And so it might be good for us to hear, how has God forgiven us? What has God done for us? Yes. And see, it will not do us any benefit to decide we want to be these radically forgiven, forgiving people if we don't realize how we've been radically forgiven. Isaiah 59 says, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden his face 
from you so that he does not hear. And so the indebtedness you owe, it's a relational dynamic. It is not just that you sin against God and break his law, you break his heart. And he cannot be with you the same. He hides his face, the scriptures say. And God in his mercy responds by offering the sacrifice of Jesus. And all throughout the scriptures, he gives us this imagery of what forgiveness is. In Isaiah 43, he says, I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake. And I will not remember your sins. And God does not lose his omniscience. His desire or his will to not remember your sins is that, an act of the will. And in doing so, he is choosing to put your sin aside so that it, does no, it no longer gets in the way of the relationship. Psalm 133 through 4. As far if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. Imagine if God in his detailed, holy, dynamic nature just listed off your sin after sin after sin. Who could stand? Who could be in his very presence if he constantly brought up what you've done against him? First Corinthians 13 and 5. If it does not dishonor others, it is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs in the context of love. It doesn't keep a record of wrongs. The word there, record of wrongs, is an accounting term. And it gives the imagery of what my wife and I do with our budget. We keep a ledger. And on that ledger, it keeps a very detailed account of every time I have used our debit card. And so when we do our budget, and my wife says, we only have a certain amount of money in the account, don't use the card, but I decide to go to Starbucks, and I get $4 coffee, and I walk into that budget meeting, and she goes down and she sees we're over by $4.25. And she can see the detailed account that I did it. And she can say, see, see, I've got an account. I've got a record. And I'm going to keep this record. And I'm going to bring it up every time. You're going, you're going out, you're going, to get, oh, you're going to get some Starbucks, aren't you? And every time I see you, I'm going to remind you of your account. I'm going to remind you of your debt. Or she can say, honey, you know our budget. I know, babe, I'm sorry. All right, I'm going to move this aside. Now, I don't want you to do this again, but I want you. I want to be in relationship with you. So I'm willing to move this record aside. I haven't forgotten this. I know this is here. But I'm going to move this out the way so that you and I can be in relationship. Our 
I want you to see, you know, again, I've gotten all these emails and phone calls and people saying, you know, people are talking to one another. But, but it's not just enough to talk to someone externally if you haven't done the internal work on your heart. And I want you to see the high, high calling of the Christian. And I want you to see that you really can't do it on your own. You can walk up to somebody and make them feel good about the relationship, but that does not mean you've done the work in your heart. Here's, here's the fourfold promise of forgiveness. I will not dwell on this incident. I will not bring up this incident again and use it against you. I will not talk to others about this incident. I will not let this incident stand between us or hinder our personal relationship. It's a fourfold promise. This, this is not going to get in the way anymore. <clears throat> and so as we've been talking about conflict, and I want you to see this work. So in Matthew 18 last week, we were talking about this, and in Matthew 18 it says, if your brother sins against you, go to him and show him his fault between you and him alone. And the verse goes on, and it talks about bringing others with you. And, and again, we've been seeing that. We've been seeing people do that, and I'm so glad that that's happening in our body. And we, we show them their fault, and it's private, and it's good. But in Matthew 18, 21, Peter responds to this like you respond to this. Peter says, oh, cool, I like this, the process, got it. Forgive people, right. And you feel good, didn't you? Some of y'all did it. You felt good after you were like, I am obedient. I love, I love God. Right? You, you, you were obedient and you felt good. So Peter came up to Jesus as if Peter walked through the steps in his mind, like go to him. Okay, Peter said, how often? Will my brother sin against me, and I forgive him? And then he throws a suggestion out there. As many as seven times. Because, you know, you forgive, and there comes a point where you got to teach him. You know what I'm saying? And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. And the wild part is those of you that are trying to count, that's why you're in this sermon today. You're doing the math. You're like, okay, well, that's 140. No, his point is not that there is a number. His point is that forgiveness is an ongoing aspect of the relationship. As long as the relationship continues, forgiveness must continue. So... Jesus, because I'm sure Peter was stunned when he heard this, Jesus then tells a story, a story that we'll put up on the screen for you to read, or if you have your Bible, you can go there in Matthew chapter 18. You can also pull it up on your phone. Matthew chapter 18, it's actually, the, the story is right after this, it's verses 23 through 34. I'm going to read the story in total, and then we'll walk through certain parts of it so that you can get the deeper aspects of forgiveness. Matthew 18, verses 23 through 25, and we'll read the rest as well. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven, Jesus says right after this, therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king 
who wished to settle accounts with his servants. Notice that Jesus, right after saying that, begins to tell a story about the kingdom of heaven. And he automatically starts talking about what it means to know the king. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of the servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded, plead, pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. And he refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. And when his fellow servants saw what had been taken, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their master all that had been taken, or had taken place rather. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me and should not, should, and should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in his anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also, so also, my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Jesus tells this story so that they would understand the incredible depth of forgiveness. Now, in first reading this, we might as well deal with the tough part at the end. Going to jail is the end game of this story. And if you're wondering what this is being correlated to, it is not being correlated to an, a physical prison on earth. This is being correlated to an eternal prison, an eternal punishment in hell. And in your first reading of this, you may say to yourself, well, if we don't forgive, we go to hell? Well, if you look in other parts of Matthew, in Matthew, what Jesus is doing, if you were to look in Matthew 25, Jesus says, I was hungry, you did not feed me. I was thirsty, you gave me no drink. And there he talks about, if you do not do this, you will have the eternal punishment. There and in here, in Matthew 18, Jesus is doing something here. He is showing what the fruit of righteousness is. 
He is not essentially saying these are the works to accomplish in order to be with Christ in heaven and to avoid hell. He is saying this is the outwork of it. This is actually what would be accomplished in the same way fruit comes from a tree and gives evidence that it is rooted. This is the evidence of salvation, that you are a forgiving person. And in so doing, the essence of this text is getting at if you have not been transformed by the forgiveness of Christ, you should question your salvation. Because he is essentially saying a forgiven person is a forgiving person. And if you lack the forgiveness towards men, then you may lack the forgiveness from God. But the essence of this is this idea of also being in prison, that he's been put in this prison based upon being an unforgiving person. On a basic level, if you do not know Christ as your Savior rescuing you from this eternal prison, then there is a prison for you in eternity, a punishment. But from the temporal side, when you are an unforgiving person, you may be forgiven by Christ and not extending that forgiveness to others, and in many ways you are still in a prison, a prison of your emotions, the many grudges that you hold against people, the way you recount those grudges against people. In order to maintain the grudge against someone, you have to have a quick memory of what they did against you, and you must place yourself on a higher level than them. In other words, intrinsic in unforgiveness is self-centeredness. Self-righteousness. You have to be, because you're, 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 you, you, you're keeping them in that position of being lower than you spiritually, and yet it binds you. So many of you have family wounds. So many of you have father wounds. From your church, you may have fellowship wounds. From your community, you have friendship wounds. You have all these wounds from your past. And those very wounds, you think that you are holding the grudge against them, but those grudges are holding you back from being the person that is God has designed you to be in order to love and care for people. You are being held back. You are doing more is happening to you than to them by holding on to the grudge. And so many of you, your past hurts and resentments are not allowing you to move forward in relationships. And it is in, in step with a prison. My, um, one of the things that I uh, 
you encounter when you first get married is that you go through conflict a lot because you're a different person. And you start having all these conversations all the time. And you start realizing that, you know, we didn't do it like this in my house. And I start, you know, I start, like, defining a great home like my home. Like, oh, no, that's not the way. See, my, where my parents did it, we used to talk all the time. And, then, and, you know, my wife would be like, well, how did you guys, like, argue? I was like, we never argue. Mm-mm, no, we don't argue. We don't argue. We kick it. We chill. That's what we do. That's how my family is. Your family arguing all the time. See, that's what your problems. And, and one of the things that I realized was I was kind of shining my family in this trophy case of, like, what they did. And then I, I started to realize once my parents got a divorce, I was like, oh, we never really did talk about problems. <laughs> we never knew how to talk about problems. And my parents weren't able to deal. They weren't able to communicate. And I remember, you know, um, people from another generation and my family from another generation, you know, one of the things they, uh, my family said was, you know, we, you know when, when you have issues, you just, you just don't, you just don't talk, have to always talk about it. And I realized, I was like, man, the same problems that ended up in divorce are still here today. Like, you just don't know how to do relationships. It wasn't just mom. It wasn't just dad. Was, you just don't know how to do a relationship. But the, notice that in here, he said that he would throw the whole family in jail. The same kind of prison-like element that happened in my home still affects me today. There's a reason why I always tell my wife, let's just move on. Because the residue of my broken home is still affecting me today. And I've got to admit that to myself. But he, he uses this imagery of a, prison. Frederick Buechner has this quote. He says, of the seven deadly sins, anger is the most fun. (laughs) To lick your wounds, to smack your lips over your grievances long past, to roll over your tongue the prospect of bitter confrontation still to come, to savor the last toothsome morsel of pain you're giving back to them in many ways, is a feast for a king. The chief drawback, though, is that what you are wolfing down at this feast is yourself, and the skeleton at the feast is you. You, 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 Right now, there is a person that you can think of, many of you can think of, that is at the top of your mind that you need to consider letting go. You know, there are people that you are angry with. And what they did was inconceivable. And you feel justified in keeping them at bay, though they desire to move on and to confess their sin. A person unwilling to confess that they've sinned against you you can forgive them, but you can't reconcile with them. A person that 
is not only sinning, but is causing you to sin. You can forgive them, but you can't be in relationship with them. But a person that is willing to confess their sin or is not even aware that they've sinned against you and you are holding out anger towards them, you are sinning in yourself and you are holding a debt against them and in many ways holding yourself from relationship. But you know, there are not only people we're angered by, but there's just people we're bothered by. Small little irritations. There's nothing major that they did. In fact, if you told the person, you'd feel silly. Or if you tell other people, you'd feel silly. But there's a whole host of people that bother you and irritate you. And it's not that they've done something so egregious. It's just that they work against the way that you think life should be. And so you remove yourself from them. And you withdraw yourself. And so we're angry and we're bothered and we've got these whole host of people in prison chained by our anger, chained by our bothersome ways. And yet the reality is that we're in the prison with them. And as I'm talking, there are people that you may want to think about, but sometimes it's easier not to think about it, to live in a state of denial, and to not shine the light on that old issue, not shine the light on that pain, because you feel like they owe you something and you don't want to think about it anymore. And in many ways, we just call ourselves moving on. I mean, coping. Well, I wonder if you want to forgive. And I wonder if you want to be a forgiving person. If so, we need to look at what the king did. What did the king do? The scripture says, out of pity for him, out of pity for him, the master of the servant released him and forgave him the debt. Out of pity for him. The master had compassion for the servant. The master identified with the servant and was able to put the servant in a position to be human. The master actually said, you're like me. And to have pity on someone means you do the internal work of seeing what you have with, in common with the person as opposed to seeing what you have not only against, but what you have above the person. Um, you know, I talk a lot about my father because he's probably the person that I've constructed my life to be like the most and yet is the hardest person for me to think about because of the nature of how much I've wanted to be like him. He, he, he unfortunately plays these dual roles in my life of like the hero and the villain, like he's both all the time. And uh, he didn't sign up for that, but um, he is. And I struggle, you know, 
And I, I've grown quite a bit in this area. But um, I was praying one time, and I felt this incredible release of forgiveness towards him. And it was when the Holy Spirit just touched my heart and reminded me the things he did against your mother, you could do against your wife. And it broke me. It broke me, and it made me see him as human. I could do that. I could do the same thing. The internal work had to happen, though. And it was painful, but it brought me closer to him. Right now, we are in this world of political campaigns. Though we've moved on from them, they're, they're, they're still going in perpetuity. Um, uh, in a political campaign, it's so crazy. Every four years, one of the things they do, if, if, you, have, if you know anything about politics, this is what they do. They, they, they claim that they're just going to have a debate about the policy. And they say, you know what, we're not going to do a lot of, you know, mudslinging. <laughs> that, that guy four years ago did that. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to run a, a clean campaign. And then four years later, right, they start getting into it. One debate goes by, and before you know it, it's no longer about policy. It's no longer about the issues. It's all about character. They're, they don't have temperament, or they're corrupt, and all this. And that's all that it becomes. And um, a gentleman was asked, uh, one of the um, political analysts, they were asked, how do we get here every four years? I mean, how do we get to this place where we say we want it about policy, but then it always ends up being about character? And, and, and one of the gentlemen said, well, the reality is, is that people actually say that but don't mean it. What ends up happening is if you look at the number of links that get clicked on, say, on a Facebook or even links on a website or links Google searches, when you look at what people search for, when you say this is their policy on global warming, it will have a good number of links and clicks. But when you say this person has committed adultery or you say they're corrupt or you say, he says it's astronomically higher. And he says, it's just easier to run a campaign that shows an, a simple contrast. When I was on my honeymoon, my wife and I, they, they you know those drawings that they make of you, on, you know, and the people on the side street and the city and whatnot? And then sometimes it looks like you, and then sometimes it's like, yeah, I ain't never putting this up, never seen that. Because what they do is they have to accentuate a part of you. You know, so they'll make your nose a certain way. You'll make your ears look a certain way. And what they're doing when they do a cartoon is they can't make you fully dimensional. They've got to do about two dimensions and make you look kind of like wild. But when you keep a person, when you, when you maintain anger against a person, that's what you have to do. You have to make them one-dimensional. They're a liar. They lied about me, and that's it. In other words, you've defined them by that incident. But what's crazy is that you've lied. And when I ask you about your lie, you're like, see, this is complicated. There's a whole lot to that. I was in a season of my life. Right? 
Like when it comes to you, it's grace. When it comes to them, it's law. When it comes to you, look at me for who I am. When it comes to them, look at this cartoon. And you minimize their humanity. And it's not that they're a flawed person, but they are a flaw. They are defined by their flaw. And you keep their flaw on rotation, on repeat in your heart. And because of that, how could you get close to that? And that's why, that's why there are people who feel it's inconceivable to vote for a certain person. How could I vote for them? Now, this electorate was very different. I won't go into detail, but <laughs> there were some things that we didn't really have to work too hard on on one of the candidates. But regardless of all that, y'all know what I'm talking about. It's inconceivable to be close to that person. Why? Because this is who they are. Theologian, Mursala Wolf, said it this way. Forgiveness flounders because I exclude the enemy from the community of humans, even as I exclude myself from the community of sinners. And the embodiment of this, then, is that I must allow them to be human. And I must remind myself that I am a sinner that they are flawed, and I too am flawed. Now, one of the last parts I, I want to show in this. If, if you remember the story, there was these two levels of debt, 10,000 talents and 100 denarii. Now, a denarii is... One, one denarii is one day's wage. One day's wage. A hundred would be obviously be a hundred days of wage, of payment. So rather than calculating this for you, think of this this way. Three months worth of salary, of your salary, whatever you make, or whatever you're praying you could make it one day. <laughs> Just because this is a different community and we're all struggling. But... <laughs> Three months of salary, right? Now, a talent, though, one talent makes up about 10,000 denarii, okay? And if you remember back in the story, there was a servant, i.e. a slave, that worked for the king, and you're like, well, how did he spoil all that money? But in that time, even servants and slaves, even though they had that as their name and title, there were, there were people who were governors that helped run the establishment of the kingdom. And they, even though they were a servant of the king, they were actually what they would call a satrap. They were like a governor. So in the same way that our, our president-elect is putting in cabinet members that would oversee major parts of the country and oversee major aspects of the budget, this was most likely someone that was a governor that oversaw major aspects of the government, major money. And so realize that 10,000 talents is somewhere upwards to millions and billions of dollars. 
And he oversaw that, and he squandered it. And you think, well, this is a government, so why is the king upset? But at that time, a king would actually fund the entire kingdom. So when money was spent, it wasn't, so it wasn't just the kingdom's money, it was the king's money. He wasted millions of the king's money. So he had every right to say, you are going to prison. And in the, in the way we understand governments, it's most likely that he didn't just go out and spend this, it's most likely that there was some level of corruption. Millions or billions of dollars of corruption. And so the king said, you are going to jail and your family. And then there's a hundred denarii. In the story, it's so crazy, man. The, the servant gets out, and even though he's been set free, there's a part of him that wants to now, when he sees that person that owes him three months' worth of salary, he's like, man, I'm going to make him pay. And the reality is, is that when you have someone sin against you, and they have a debt, you want them to pay for it. Or you could pay for it. But somebody's got to pay. Um, when I go to uh, cookouts, it's always an interesting affair. Because um, I'm a big dude. And when I go to cookouts, me, my size when it comes to food is not the issue. It's, it's the chairs. So when you go... And the chairs are there. It's always these flimsy lawn chairs that were not made for someone of my stature. And so I always have to do like wall squats and just kind of like, just check. I got to check. I got to check to see the sturdiness of it. But the reason why I do this is because I've broken a few. <laughs> Thank you for that. <laughs> Thank you. I've broken a few chairs in my time. And when I break a chair... Always, always, you know, the, 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 whoever the host is, they come over and they say, oh, tch, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Now, meanwhile, in their heart, they're like, why did your big butt sit on it in the first place? But, they, you know, they're like, oh, I'm so sorry. And, then, and what I always say is, I'll pay for it. And they go, no, 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 I'll pay it. I got it. I got it. No, 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 no. Go, let's get you a chair. Let's get a little sturdy chair. Go get a couch. Go get a couch for him. Just sit down. <laughs> you know, and they come and they get something for me to sit down on. And like, no, don't, don't act like it. No, just sit down. Just sit down. Just sit down. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. Get some food. Now, what just happened? Somebody got to pay for it. Or they can just not have another chair. But it has to be paid for. And every time there is a debt, somebody's got to pay. It doesn't just go away. Somebody's got to pay for it. And so I'm willing. I'll pay for it. No, you don't, you don't, you don't, you don't have to pay. <laughs> if you look in verse 28, the servant went out. He found one of his fellow servants, owed him 100 denarii, seized him, and he began to choke him. Do you understand what he says? He said he choked him before he asked, before he asked for the money back. <laughs> Did you peep that? He didn't even, what's up? 
give me my money. It's so crazy. So that's the craziness of the story. This dude gets out of prison, and he's like, yo, what's up? Oh, Tony, come here. Ah, chokes him. And so he didn't want relationship. He wanted retribution. You see, some of you will go, and you'll be like, yeah, Matthew 18, I need to go to you. But you're not going for relationship. You're going for retribution. You may not be choking them with your hands, but your words don't actually want a relationship. And those people feel it because you're seeking justice, not relationship. You're, and, and really, the justice you think you want is actually vengeance. He starts to choke this man. But you see, in choking him, that's a form of payment in and of itself. You see, if I can hurt you, if I can make you feel something, yeah. You'll know how it feels for me to not have money if I can make you feel something. And so understand the 80,000 foot view of the things we've talked about. When you make them pay, you slander them. They say, yeah, this is what they are. You, you, watch out, because this is who they are. You spoil their reputation in the community. Why? Because you're making them pay. You're not just protecting other people from their issues. You're making them pay. Now, certainly, certainly, there are people who continually sin, and that, but, but you know what I'm talking about. You slander because you want to make them pay. You withdraw away from friendship. And some of you do it in such a way where you haven't even acknowledged that's what you're doing, but you want people to wonder why you've withdrawn. You want people to be like, why'd she do that? And it makes you feel better that they're wondering about you. Because you want to make them pay. Or you choke them out, you go after them. You tell them off you want to make them pay. Or you can pay. You say, well, what, where's this, doesn't this analogy break down? I mean, how do I pay? Well, payment, by you paying for the debt, in a sense, it's really when you are identifying with the person. And you're saying, no, 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 no. I'm not going to make you keep working on this. I am going to work on me. And I'm going to think about how we're the same. And I'm going to pray for you. And when your mind, when you come up in my mind, I'm going to think about how the king released me from my debt. And I am going to continue to release you from your debt. And I'm going to cut away that self-pity from me. And I'm going to love you. And you say, well, how does that apply to us? Well, you think about King Jesus who dies on the cross for our sin, but he dies because he was identifying with us. In fact, he replaced us on the cross. And in replacing us on the cross, he is paying our debt. He is suffering so that we can have relationship. And he, he dies for all of our sins. And so I, I want you all to hear that the power of Jesus, 
that suffered on the cross for our sin in order to make room for relationship is what we are required to do as Christians. We are to suffer, to extend ourselves to those who have hurt us and hurt us in the most unimaginable ways. It is by this kind of radical forgiveness that they will know that we are Christians. It is not by our insurmountable knowledge. It is not by our great music. It is being a forgiven people that forgive people. That will be dynamic in this world. That we don't hold grudges. And if you want to be this type of person, then you must seek the power of the king. You must seek Jesus in order to experience this kind of dynamic power. You have been forgiven an incredible debt of all your sin. And you now are called to be forgiving of others' sin. Corrie ten Boom was a Dutch woman who had lived in the Netherlands and then was captured in the Holocaust during World War II. And she was eventually placed in a concentration camp. And in those concentration camps and in the World War, over six million people died. Six million Jews died. Corrie ten Boom was in those concentration camps with her sister. Corey Tim Boom in the concentration camps would have to move huge heaps of clothes all day because in the concentration camp, you were a designated worker and many times you were a designated worker just awaiting your execution. She lived in perpetual fear of death. Corey Ten Boom would eventually get out of that concentration camp and she would become a world-renowned Bible teacher. It reads, one of her books, at a church service in Munich where I was speaking, I saw him, the former SS guard. He had stood guard at the so-called shower room. He would hang there with others. The other guards would be there. Listen. And he would often run his hand over the naked bodies of women as he passed by. And oftentimes, we would request for help against him but help never came. But amazingly enough, he was the first of our actual jailers that I actually saw after the war. And suddenly, I saw everything again. I was reminded of everything again. I saw the heaps of clothes again. I saw the death in my sister's face again. Now pause, before I read this next part, pause. 
In this moment, Corrie ten Boom is captured by her past. You see, there's something in your mind right now saying, no, 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 if you knew what they did to me, there's no way I could. She's a prisoner in this moment. Even though she's not in a concentration camp anymore, she's a prisoner to those old wounds. But amazingly enough, the same SS guard, after I was speaking, speaking in Munich, he came up to me as the church was being let out. And he said, how grateful I am for your message, Fräulein, which is young lady. To think, he says, that as you say, he has washed away all my sins. And his hand was thrust out to shake mine. She said, but my hand stood by my side, and I could not move it. Angry, vengeful thoughts, they boiled inside of me. I tried to smile. I struggled to move my hand, but I could not. She, she says, I couldn't do it. I could not forgive him in my own power. I remember what he did to my sister. I remember what he did to me. I, I, I naturally remember. I can't. And here this man's hand is standing there saying, can you believe he's washed away my sins? And she says, Jesus, I can't forgive him. She says, give me your forgiveness. And she prayed this prayer while the man stood there. And she says, as I took his hand, the most incredible thing happened. From my shoulder, along my arm, and through my hand, a current seemed to pass. And while into my heart sprang a love, for this stranger that almost overwhelmed me. I pray you, believer. I pray you, Christian. I pray you have this story, that you reach out your hand to someone who has broken you, who has hurt you, who has sinned against you, who bothers you, but you can. Give me the power to shake their hand, to love them and be in relationship with them. Give me that power. And Jesus offers you that power today. He offers you that power today. We are going to do what we've done throughout this series. We're going to have uh, communion, and we are also going to have a time in the back I pray that as you go to the back, that you just pray the name or names of people. I pray as you go to the back, you 
You just may need to just sit and say, I need that power. And if the Holy Spirit lives inside of you, you have that power. Notice the power of forgiveness came as she reached towards him. Notice that the depth of bitterness came as the first thing the servant did was reach to choke them and not even talk about what happened. And I pray you would experience this kind of power. We are not only going to have prayer, but we're also going to have communion so that you can see the great sacrifice of Jesus. And so we're going to be in this moment. I pray that you would feel the healing power of Jesus in this moment. Pray with me. Jesus, your healing power right now, God. I pray, God, that we would see how many talents, how much debt we've been forgiven, God. God, would you remind us of the how incredible your forgiveness has been towards us, how you've blotted out all our transgressions and how you do not keep a record of our wrongs. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for your great sacrifice on the cross and dying for my sins, all of my sins. And dear God, let me experience your great power today, power to extend my hand, power to love. We will sing, and then we will have a time of communion. We hope you've been encouraged by this message. We'd love to hear how God used this sermon to speak to you. Please take a minute to email us your story. Our email address is info at bridgechurchnyc.com. And you can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram by using at bridgechurchnyc or visit our website, bridgechurchnyc.com. Thanks again for listening to this week's message.